Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Liz O'Sullivan. Liz is the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project's Technology Director. She's also the co-founder and vice president of commercial operations at Arthur AI, an AI explainability and bias monitoring startup. Liz has been featured in articles on ethical AI in the New York Times, The Intercept, and The Register, and has written about AI for the ACLU and the campaign to stop killer robots. She has spent 10 years in tech, mainly in the AI space, most recently as the head of image annotations for the computer vision startup, Clarify. A few months ago, after IBM, Microsoft, and Amazon made statements disavowing facial recognition technology and really made headlines and and made waves saying that they were no longer going to share their facial recognition tech and data with law enforcement, we brought on Deb Raji to give us a 101 about what we should think about some of those announcements, about whether we should take them seriously, and about really what should we know about facial recognition technology and surveillance technology in general. And we thought it would be a good idea to bring in another expert a few months down the line to check in about the surveillance situation uh, in our country, in the United States, and also around the world. Uh, And so it was lovely to talk to Liz O'Sullivan about many topics in this interview, but especially what you should know about the state of surveillance in the world today. What we can do as consumers to stop unintentionally contributing to surveillance. And really after the facial recognition industry had a reckoning after the murder of George Floyd, are things actually getting better? In this interview, you'll hear us talk quite a bit about the Freedom of Information Act. And since it was signed into law in 1967 in the United States, the Freedom of Information Act, otherwise known as the FOIA or FOIA, has provided the public the right to request access to records from any federal agency. So this act is helpful for those of us engaging with surveillance technology because it gives us a channel to request information about what surveillance technology is being used and what data is being collected by the government. So without further ado, we are so excited to share this interview with Liz O'Sullivan about surveillance technology with all of you. We are on the line today with Liz O'Sullivan. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Could you start us off by just telling us a bit about who you are and why you do the work that you do? Oh man, <laughs> that's a great question. Who am I? Well, uh, gosh, I'm, I guess I've been working in the, in the tech scene for a while now. It's maybe eight or nine years, my whole career. Um, it's been in AI companies, but on the business side. So I, I wasn't nitty gritty doing the ones and zeros like, like all of you folks. Um, but I was sort of on the product side and it's where I like, started learning about things like bias and explainability. And um, you know, my career brought me to a company called Clarify, which is a computer vision company. And uh, because it's just not a startup unless you have 17,000 jobs, I, I ended up uh, you know, transitioning away from sort of the business biz dev side. And I ended up working on annotations, which was a really fun space. 
And this is kind of a long-winded way of getting around to it, but I promise it makes sense because annotations in a computer vision company, um, you start to see the ways that these preconceived notions of bias or cultural differences across continents. You know, we had labelers in India, Africa, the United States, all over the country. Um, and the way that they show up in models um, where you have, you know, different opinions about what explicit means or um, even just like a cat, right? Like as a hairless cat, count as a cat and all of these like preconceived notions that are sort of human, like programmed in the language. But, um, but when they show up in the math, it's really jarring and you can see that firsthand. Um, so that was, you know, working on certain kinds of security applications, working on content moderation. I mean, we just, because we didn't focus on any particular use of application of AI, computer vision, um, we kind of got to see it all. And it was like a crash course. And uh, the company um, was working on a military project, which has since become very notorious, called Project Maven. And at first, we didn't really know, you know, what it was about or that it was military. And then those details started to leak out. And then the Google walkout happened. And all of a sudden, the whole industry kind of snapped together and said, like, wait a minute, maybe this stuff is bad. <laughs> the funny part is there have been so many people who were talking about this well in advance of my awakening, right? I mean, uh, like people writing books on the topic. And so it's, it, it, we came to the table very, very late. But um, once you kind of have your eyes opened about these kinds of things, it's, it's hard to kind of go back into that box. And um, so when I wrote an open letter to the CEO and asked him not to build a certain kind of weapon, this really scary thing that computer vision makes possible, a, a lethal autonomous weapon system or like a killer robot drone, as you might call it. Um, you know, it was disappointing to hear that, that he wouldn't refuse to work on these things or like, you know, maybe kind of thought that this technology was going to save lives in some ways. And, um, like the short end of the, the answer, which I've taken way too long to respond to, by the way, is that it truly radicalized me. It made me become very political. And, and since then, I've been working to make sure that some of these really terrible and scary uses of AI are never allowed to come to light. And that's how I got involved with the campaign to stop killer robots at the UN level. And I also met uh, Albert Foxconn from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, where we work on local politics here in New York City, New York State, to try to ban facial recognition, among other things, right? Like, because that's a very common way that people connect with this, this scariness of surveillance, but it's hardly the, the scariest <laughs> the proposed technology that's out there. Um, so basically, I just, it's crazy to think back on these last couple of years since all this went down, but I, I have been working in, in trying to just make AI a little bit better, a little bit safer for everybody, and then outlaw the stuff that's really, really bad. To help uh, frame this conversation, one of the reasons why we wanted to chat with you is because you are an uh, expert on surveillance. Um, and we're curious, uh, so we're, we are recording this on September 25th, 2020. Uh, as of today, what, what should people know about surveillance? Um, we've had various people come on the show and, and talk at different times, but especially in the past, say, uh, six months, um, there's just been, you know, news article after news article about different companies coming out in terms of taking stances and it, uh, our listenership is, you know, sometimes unclear about whether those are real stances or whether it's just like ethics washing, like people saying mm -hmm. what they should say. Um, so right now, just uh, as, you know, as, as brief as makes sense, because uh, I'm <laughs> sure we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, but what, what should people know about surveillance right now and surveillance tech? 
It's such an important question. It's such an important question right now, especially as we head into this election, as we, you know, suffer through all of this national unrest because of the systematic racism that's causing these disproportionate killings of Black people, the white supremacy that threatens our entire democracy. And these are real threats, right? I mean, there's no sugarcoating that. There, there are things to be afraid of in our world right now. And um, the scary part of it is that the government's single solution for these things tends to be all right, more surveillance, right? Like more monitoring. We see this every time there's a massive crisis. After 9-11, more monitoring, more surveillance. Uh, with the Boogaloo Boys, more surveillance. And then now in the United States, the George Floyd's murder and all the protests that happen as a result of that, um, you know, you have predator drones flying over the United States, over our sovereign soil to monitor, you know, <laughs> I guess they would like to say it's violence, but it's not, right? It's, it's really just expression of dissent and, and protest of things that are part of our society that have been this way forever. It's not new, right? Um, but I think what people often miss about surveillance is that, you know, it's, it's very seldom exclusively coming from the government. It's usually a blend of the private companies and corporate surveillance that enables this like incredible amount of access to information about every single person that comes into this country and abroad um, that is powered by the consumer tech that we love to use every day. And so that's a big part of why I do what I do, because we shouldn't all have to walk around with our phones in airplane mode. Uh, we should be able to have fun, nice things and technology that allows us to connect to each other, for instance, like social media, uh, without fear that uh, it's being scraped and used to compile a database of faces that's then sold to law enforcement. And, uh, and the laws that we have in the United States are simply insufficient to protect our civil liberties against corporate surveillance and the transmission of that data from, say, Google, for instance, or Microsoft or whoever, into the hands of the FBI, of, of the local police. Um, even the Fourth Amendment, you know, is supposedly a stalwart against this kind of thing, but through this little known thing called third-party consent, they can get access to it. You give away your right, you know, to this kind of privacy whenever you click a and uh, it, user terms uh, agreement. So uh, what I want to be able to do is to tease those two things apart, to have our private world, our consumer technology that's doing amazing things, keeping families in touch with each other. You know, who doesn't love cat photos? We all love them <laughs> dearly. Uh, but to keep that separate from what is happening from the law enforcement perspective and to force a division between this like civil and, and military blending that we're seeing increasingly every day. Um, yeah, so I don't, that's a very long-winded way of saying like things are, are very intense right now and, and uh, most people don't realize how it touches their lives every moment of every day. Everything you say or type into your phone um, could be in a database. One of the, I think, questions behind the question um, that I just asked is that I think there was a moment of hope maybe in, in June or, or July where there were protests, where there was this public dissent and then it seemed like there was some set of actions being taken by especially some of the the corporate giants of microsoft uh, amazon um etc and uh i guess i'm curious are things getting better <laughs> like was that hope misplaced um or is is there something that's actually moving here that that might be making things maybe better for the future yeah i'm gonna take a second because i i just want to 
couch this in in a bit of a hedge just to say, you know, like, I don't want to be a buzzkill, but I do want to talk truthfully about these issues. I mean, yeah, it's great. IBM was the first one to come out and say, like, we won't sell facial recognition to law enforcement. That's awesome. They put pressure on several other companies to do that, too. It was Microsoft. I think who was the other one? There was another one um, that agreed. I don't know, some, some other big company um, off the top of my head. But, you know, but I think it's also telling, you have to look at this in the context of what's going on globally. Where is the facial recognition market? Oh, it was Amazon was the other one. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've been studying this stuff for a couple of years and uh, I don't know that, I mean, IBM's practice is not huge, right? Like they were never big on selling law enforcement uh, facial recognition. Uh, Microsoft, definitely not. I, th I think that that was kind of the first time that Microsoft leadership bowed to or gave in to employee activism, namely about Seattle, because that's, you know, where a lot of them lived. And they were, there was a relationship there between local law enforcement and Microsoft. And they stopped. I mean, that's incredible. We're exerting our power over these huge conglomerates that have all of the money and all of the power in the world. Um, any victory is a big one, and we should be proud of ourselves for that. But, you know, when I look at Microsoft in particular, Microsoft powers one of the most interconnected surveillance networks in the whole country called the Domain Awareness System. And the Domain Awareness System covers the lower half of Manhattan. It, it, it takes in inputs from all kinds of different sensors, not just cameras. Um, and it maybe is not directly facial recognition, but it certainly allows for the collaboration of facial recognition with the other kinds of sensor input types that Microsoft sort of aggregates in this command center that local police have access to. Interestingly, um, this is not just a New York thing. Since developing it in, in concert with the NYPD, they collaborated on this system together. They've also resold the system. Um, NYPD gets a cut of the profit every time they sell it somewhere. And we don't even know <laughs> where else this is. This is something that's really hard to use Freedom of Information Act, which is our main tool for discovering how these tools are used and where and when and how, um, because it's uh, it's we just don't know who to ask for it. Like they, it's a Microsoft product. We can't FOIA Microsoft. Um, but there have been two uh, two locations that were reported, and that was Brazil and Singapore. Not the greatest in human rights track records, right? Like Singapore, um, you know, it's pretty authoritarian, and uh, so it's it's curious to me. You know, we don't hear about this very often, but. Um, to me, a lot of it was just the trade-off of this small concession, you know, small financially, but huge for PR. And that's when you get, you know, like people in my family and my mom sends me a bunch of texts like, hey, you should check out Brad Smith. He's super ethical. Microsoft is doing all this incredible work. You should be happy. Um, but the reality of it is like, it wasn't even a dent in the kinds of facial recognition software um, that's being used out there. I would say the exception is Amazon, and Amazon did agree to stop selling uh, the sale of their facial recognition products to law enforcement, where they are selling a lot of facial recognition to law enforcement. Probably not a huge moneymaker for them because it's pretty inexpensive, but um, but like those relationships are important for lots of other reasons. They're very much looking at themselves as like a pro law enforcement security type company, as we see with the ring doorbell cameras and these new floating indoor drones <laughs> that they're talking about selling. That's brand new. Um, but like, as far as the companies that made this decision, they actually do stand to lose something and they caved to pressure anyway. And that is a win. 
that is a huge win. Microsoft, uh, I'm sorry, Amazon didn't agree to stop selling it forever. They just put a moratorium on it for a year, which is telling, right? Um, it's informative, but that was, you know, it was a chip. It was a, a chink in the armor. It was absolutely a, a first step towards um, broader progress. And I think that's what's so exciting about facial recognition for me is that it really it connects with people in a way that you can visualize it. You can see that it's your face and that you can't change your face and you can't hide from it without like extensive plastic surgery. And so people are, are very invested in curbing this threat. So that's, that's what's most exciting to me about all of it. Yeah, it sounds like there's definitely hopefully some hope for the future. But uh, what I'm wondering right now is taking the lens from these large tech companies and instead shifting it towards the individual. Ever since all of the events that happened in June and uh, in the wake of George, George Floyd's murder and all of these companies coming out with these big statements, there's been a lot of fear amongst uh, general society about surveillance and, and technology surveillance in general. And so I'm wondering what we should actually be worried about? What is uh, fear-mongering and what is valid to actually be worried about? Uh, like, for example, should we be worried about our Amazon purchases and how that is perpetuating surveillance? Should we be worried about our phone calls being surveilled, our WhatsApp messages, our Facebook photos? What, what is it that we should actually fear and, and what is okay? <laughs> mm. Oh man, I really wish I had a solid answer for you there. It's like the, the unfortunate truth is that there's just so much that we don't know. And even the things that they disclose uh, could be parallel construction, right? Like, so you'll have some, some insignificant detail in a photo, like a tattoo or an article of clothing. And yeah, maybe you could spend the time and do good investigative practices to find out like that they purchased that face mask, for instance, on Etsy or something like that. And I've seen that happen in work. Um, so yeah, your, your purchases, your online purchases, whenever you leave a review for something like that could, that could absolutely be evidence against you. Um, if you, you know, as some have in recent months, like lobbed a Molotov at a cop car or something like that. Not that I advocate doing that. Um, but even just if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, right. And you're in a photo next to somebody who's doing those kinds of things, um, or you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you have nothing to do with that but just your GPS location on your phone puts you in the vicinity of where a crime has happened within a certain range of time. And that's subject to a geolocation reverse warrant. And that's a thing that happens as well, where like people, uh, cops go to Google and they say, tell me everybody who was in this location between three and 4 PM on October 34th, or that's not a date. You know what I mean? <laughs> October 30 something, not 34th. Um, but yeah, so like these tiny, tiny artifacts absolutely end up being, you know, linchpins in uh, the in the, the search for for suspects. And that, you know, you may think if I'm not doing anything wrong, then I have nothing to worry about. But there's tons of room for error because the technology is not perfect and uh, it's being sold as if it is. And uh, those kinds of advertising claims are very dangerous. But yeah, absolutely. Everything from your social media photos, um, all of that gets scraped from the internet into a database on Clearview AI where they use facial recognition on it. So um, this is just this, not to freak you all out. I'm sure you all know this is happening, but there is a way out. There is a very clear way out. And it's just to limit the amount of power that the state has. The balance of power between us and the state has tipped dramatically in the last few years, um, just due to all the new technologies that are out there and how quickly they're improving. The laws have not kept up 
And that's what we need to really address in the short term is fixing them so that we can have social media, so that we can have our cat photos and share them. And to do it in a way that we know that we're not putting ourselves at risk, or if we share photos of our friends and family online, that we're not putting them at risk either. You mentioned something that I think is actually a big part of this argument here, and it's the, the phrase, uh, if I have nothing to hide, I shouldn't worry. Or there's, you know, there's different ways to, to phrase it, but I hear this a lot, especially when it comes to the Fourth Amendment in the United States, talking about um, unwarranted searches and seizures and um, people fearing the police coming in without probable cause. But then um, there's this argument that, well, you know, if even if they didn't have probable cause, as long as I'm being a good citizen, it shouldn't matter, right? So only those who are worrying are those who are doing something wrong in the first place. And, and this is interesting when it comes to surveillance, right? Because um, then we have to ask, well, okay, so should I only post things on the internet or search for things on Google that I am okay with the police knowing? Or should I always, uh, like, should I always be fearing that I am under surveillance? Or should I actually, um, you know, treat the digital world as the physical world and um, trust that I might still have my own sense of privacy and that the government won't be intervening at any given time? What, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, it's such a hard question. It's such a hard question because the, the reality of it is that AI allows you to take an insane amount of information and parse it and to sort it in a way that makes it consumable to a human being. So where you might think that like the one photo of you at a protest is safe for you to put it online, um, it's not because they'll be able to search or they'll be able to use computer vision to filter down or like, let's say, God forbid you use a hashtag, you know, like George Floyd murder, Breonna Taylor's cops are free. Um, you know, all of these things are, um, they're searchable. They, they are absolutely searchable. So yeah, I mean, it, and it just taints the way that you think about using your own social media, right? Like my own relationship with social media has changed so dramatically um, since I've become an activist in the last couple of years. And, you know, I use only encrypted chat, you know, I, I, I don't use hashtags. I, I'm very careful about what I put online. Um, but, you know, the whole I'm not doing anything wrong thing it just completely ignores the the fact that this technology fails a lot that it messes up and that it's not perfect and especially the unfortunate thing is the way that it fails is usually disproportionately um you know harming black people and not just black people but people who are visually minorities in any way disabled people is another perfect example there's just not enough research on how this technology works on faces that are you know not white not norm um so it I wish that I could say that like this, this online realm is as safe as you are, you know, walking down the street in obscurity, but it, it's just simply not. It's interesting uh, what you just said about how your own use of technology and social media has shifted since you became an activist in this space. And I, I don't know if you um, saw the, the new uh, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, um, which there has a lot of there's, there's a lot in the zeitgeist right now around that. So we're not going to take any sides on, on that movie. But um, it, it was interesting in hearing the different folks who were interviewed for that movie talk about how they don't have a social uh, network platform or they have distanced themselves from it. And as me, I, I used to work in the hospital and a lot of the uh, physicians I would talk to and especially surgeons were like, I never want to be on a do not resuscitate, right? Like I, I want, I always, I, like just don't resuscitate me is basically what they would tell me because they know from the other side, like how the sausage gets made essentially, right? They know um, that 
how what goes into actually resuscitating someone um, and like breaking of the ribs and things like that. And, and it's interesting, I think, how our relationships change to this. Uh, but I, I think my question actually is more around what you had just finished saying around the, um, the racial element to all of this. And I think we're still hearing, and maybe more now than we were three months ago, that, oh, well, no, surveillance technology actually impacts everyone equally, right? Like surveillance technology, even when it's like working, like it's surveilling everyone equally. Uh, what would you say to folks who are uh, claiming there's an equality in how surveillance technology is being used right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that it's just not that way in the practice of it, right? Like, so you're, in, you're imagining this like 100% complete surveillance panopticon that like no matter who you are, there's people on the other side of it with headphones listening in, right? Like, and that's kind of like a visual way for us to imagine um, that this is the case. But uh, the reality of it is that you as a, as a law enforcement officer can pick and choose where to deploy your tools or where to look, where to point the lens. Um, and that's figuratively and literally. You have cameras that roll around in New York City, especially, um, you know, they're, they're stationary, but you can put them wherever you want, you know, and you can then have those. And that's exactly what cops use to uh, look at uh, facial recognition. They use those photos as seed photos. Interestingly, a lot of them are not high quality enough uh, photography even just to feed effectively through an algorithm and so you get all these really poor matches um, resulting in um, some someone getting accused of a crime uh, and where do you think those cameras go you know we see in the research shows time and time again that the cameras are disproportionately deployed in areas of gentrification where you have a lot of people of one nationality and background moving into the area of another and these neighborhoods, you know, are usually minority, especially in New York City, we have, um, you know, a rich history of discriminating against black people and also, uh, especially after 9-11, uh, Muslim people. And so, you know, it's, it's multiple folds when you have uh, police departments deciding, you know, based off of instinct, where to send patrol cars. Um, and then that becomes data of arrest records that then gets trained into an algorithm that says send more cop cars to these areas because you'll find more crime. The reality of it is, is that there's probably crime everywhere, but because somebody decided we're more likely to get our quota filled here in a certain area of the country in certain blocks, um, you know, then those are where the cops go. And so it's a self-perpetuating system that just guarantees that the most vulnerable people in our culture are the most at risk. And so for people who say, you know, I'm not at risk if I'm not doing anything wrong, uh, you know, you probably are a white person <laughs> if you're saying that, um, because even if you're not doing anything wrong as a black person walking past a ring doorbell camera that could be used, maybe the person on the other side of that camera is suspicious of you. Maybe they had a package stolen from in front of their house yesterday uh, or that same day. And then they send that photo to a police office, which they can do automatically through those relationships that Amazon has with police. And then they use facial recognition on it, which Amazon also su supplies to the police. And then uh, that person gets arrested, right? Or somebody else gets arrested that looks like that person, even though they didn't even do anything wrong. So it's just, it's a systematic, it's a systemic problem that starts with, you know, the behaviors of people and the way that we are trained and the way that we are raised um, and our own natural human fears 
and suspicions, but it also is, is just made infinitely worse and codified into a system that people can point to and say, look, this machine is the one that made this decision, not me as a human. I'm not racist. Machines can't be racist. So there's no race involved here. When we know actually the opposite is true, that machines simply reflect the racism that we program into them and in doing so are themselves racist. <laughs> When we talk about these systematic issues of oppression, it's really easy to feel hopeless in this space. Uh, but one of the things that uh, both Dylan and I love about your work, Liz, is that you are the technology director for the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, also known as STOP, which seems to be looking to remedy some of these concerns and to really help with these issues. Could you tell us a bit about that project? Absolutely. So STOP is about a year and a half old. Um, Albert Fox Khan, the executive director, um, previously his work was at CARE, a Muslim advocacy group here in New York and, and nationally. And, um, you know, we've sort of formed around uh, this uh, notion of police accountability. And so NYPD has the largest police department in the country, long been, you know, a big black box about and a, and a testing ground for what kinds of technology is being used, um, you know, in, in the wake of 9-11. There's nowhere else where you're going to find a more um, supportive pop a public that thinks that, you know, that we do need this stuff, right? Because there is legitimate concern for, for self and safety. But in doing so, you know, the more information that we collect through Freedom of Information Act and whistleblowers and things like that, um, we can see that they're, they're buying technology and they're using it in a way that is very experimental and they, they almost don't know what they have and, and what to do with it. Um, a couple of examples, you know, they, they used, uh, they tried to use real-time facial recognition on cameras on a bridge in New York City and come to find out that it was effective exactly 0% of the time in trying to identify people through moving vehicles and, um, you know, glass windshields. And so turns out the technology is not quite there yet, um, as you might imagine. Um, and what happened to that data? You know, where did it go? Is it being used? Is it being archived for a future date where it could potentially be searched, uh, you know, against crimes in the past, right? Um, or is it being sold to private entities that are then maybe even creating open source data sets to share around the world? And I'm saying these things like they're, they're also like worst case scenario, but these are all things that have happened. I mean, there was a, a partnership between IBM and, and New York City where they gave away a bunch of video data for free. Um, and IBM came out incredibly, you know, on top of that deal. So the first law that we, we really focused on as an organization was the POST Act. Um, and it was a police transparency law that now, and we finally got it passed uh, you know, this year after three years of, of trying to press, and, and not just myself, but many, many organizations in New York, um, Rashida Richardson and, and ICLU and, and AI Now, and like a bunch of other organizations, our Brennan Center have been working on this forever. And, um, and so we finally were able to almost unanimously push it through city council. Uh, but it was the first time that, and NYPD hates it, right? <laughs> they absolutely despise this law. But it just, it just is very simple. It's like one of the weaker police accountability laws in the country, just to say, tell us what you're using. You know, let us know. And there's, you have to create a policy for what you're going to do with the data. 
and and that's really all that we've we've asked for so far you know now we we kind of want to turn and start banning these things and there are a couple things we're working on there um but you know it's a first step and and it wouldn't have been possible without all of the incredible support from people protesting all over the country in support of of racial equity um so you know there is absolutely hope and and i think the fact that people have become so awakened to this issue and are writing city council and voting and voting with their dollars and all of these things are coming together it's a real reckoning for these practices and it's a, it's a really exciting moment who's responsible for regulating surveillance technology <laughs> which is a very loaded question right um but one of the thing that things that's been really interesting to trace is uh this dynamic like th that you've you know very eloquently described here between the massive corporations out there with the technology um, and then also the government uh, who is uh, making, trying to be not, not uh, partisan here, but making certain decisions, right? And empowering certain groups over others, certain technologies over others, giving resources certain places and not others. Um, and I think there's just a, a big question out there about like who, needs to take responsibility for this technology and the development of this technology and maybe who even has the power um, to say no because as much as I, I'd like to believe that any of us can you know use the Freedom of Information Act to get information or to combat some of the surveillance tech I think there are some very intentional uh, systemic things going on here that disempower uh, the everyday person um, and so I'm just wondering like who who has the power to change things? And then how do like normal everyday people, how do we use the little power that we have to change some of these systems? I love it. I love this question so much because it really is, it could go a million different directions and there's so many different ways that we can stop this. We absolutely can. We're seeing so much progress right now. I'll probably start with the, the most exciting piece, which I think is local politics, which is generally, you know, it's, it's never going to result in, in like a, huge revolutionary nationwide change. Well, actually, let me take that back. It can result in a national change because you have cities like San Francisco outright banning facial recognition, right? And even more recently, um, you know, Portland with one of the strongest bans in the country, not just for law enforcement, um, but for uh, private use as well. So restaurants, retail, they can't do it either. And so, you know, these are uh, places where your voice matters more than anywhere else. You know, I, when I, the first day I became an activist, honestly, and I joined uh, Albert's org, we went um, to my city council person who hadn't signed on to the POST Act. And simply by virtue of calling them and I asked them, you know, what, what do you guys think about the POST Act? And they said, what's the POST Act? And I knew that we had on something, you know, and so I scheduled a meeting and we all went. And by the end of the day, they had signed on as a co-sponsor. Um, but that was the first part was like getting that meeting was even just me calling up and talking to a staffer. It wasn't on their radar. They have a lot going on. But because I cared about it, I live in his neighborhood like we'd met, you know, at community events and things. Um, so he was accountable to me and, and to his neighborhood. And, and so we had that power and we exercised that power and it worked. Um, and so it's a lot easier to kind of get through to your politicians on a city level, on a town level, on a state level even. And then these laws become the template that spreads across the country. And sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. Um, and I'll say, you know, in, for instance, in California, the CCCPA, or CCPA, um, too many C's, 
the CCPA uh, was modeled very much after the EU law. And so you can see like, this is a template, this is a privacy law, the European Union, the GDPR, that you know was very similar to what came out of California. And that's not an accident. It's just these things work, they've gone through committee, they've been you know, tested by the public reactions that have come of them. And uh, as you, you can see, good things happen. Um, so that's a good thing, right? The GDPR is very protective. Uh, and then the alternative, though, is where you see lobbying efforts come into this. And again, this is where I see private entities partnering with law enforcement that have a financial gain or opportunity here. Um, and in Washington state, before San Francisco ever banned facial recognition, they were discussing it on the state level. And uh, there were some really good proposals backed by the ACLU, um, backed by academics at University of Washington, that and and there was a, a very favorable um you know legislative body that had a super majority democrats and they had really great public support but the the lawmakers and microsoft and amazon lobbyists disappeared into a room and came out with you know a year later a bill that actually microsoft's policy team wrote about facial recognition regulating that facial recognition and it was weak and it had holes and it's, it's now um, spreading to other states as well. And so this is you know, the way that we see things starting small and then growing. You know, we as a public need to be aware, we need to be involved in city council meetings and you know, just talking to the people that represent us on the local level to help us push that along. There's so much more I could say about this. There's so many other ways that we can all have an impact here. I mean, the other thing that we can do is just like hold big tech companies to account. It's not the wonky dorks like me who are out here fighting that are changing things. Like, you know, I'm just one person, but it's when we all agree that this can't stand and that we go to social media and that we complain in, 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 uh, on Facebook and on Twitter and we have the hashtags that we come together on and, and say defund the police or, or um, you know, stop selling facial recognition. When they're, when they're afraid that they're going to lose their consumer user base, that's when change happens. And so we all have power here. It's just a question of feeling actualized enough and feeling empowered enough to do it. And that's why I always try to focus on, on the hope rather than just the dire situation, although certainly both are the case. <laughs> Earlier on in this interview, uh, you mentioned a point at which you became an, an uh, AI activist and you became radicalized in some way. Um, and this is the Radical AI podcast, so you knew this question was coming, uh, probably. Um, but we're curious what radical means to you in this mm. AI technology space. Um, and whether and or I guess to what degree you situate your own story and your own work within that definition? Oh, what a good question. I love this because, um, you know, and the first time I ever really identified with that word or connected with that word was through the campaign to stop killer robots. I was uh, shockingly, you know, like immediately after my story became public knowledge and I reached out to the campaign and we started working together. Um, you know, they invited me immediately to come to the UN with them in Geneva. There was like a, a meeting of the uh, Convention on Conventional Weapons that they wanted to, to bring me into. And, um, uh, you know, and so I, it doesn't feel radical to me <laughs> to say, hey, maybe let's not give robots guns. Like, guys, like, maybe we just shouldn't do that. Seems like a pretty decent, like, pragmatic plan to me. Um, but, you know, according to the other people in the campaign, these are people who have been doing diplomacy forever um, and working at NGOs and doing pacifism. 
And, uh, and they, they are the first people to tell me that like actually supporting a ban on this like weapon that may or may not exist to varying degrees right now is considered radical. So, okay, I guess I'm radical there. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, but I also take issue with like this notion that being radical, um, that caring about vulnerable people is radical, that we, sh we should put, you know, the, the poor people and the people who are disadvantaged for whatever reason um, to the forefront of our policy thinking. Um, that shouldn't be radical. It, it, it absolutely shouldn't be. That's just common human decency. And so I guess I am radical. But to me, it just means like, you know, kind of an alternative viewpoint to think outside the box and say, this is the reality that we've been presented, but it doesn't have to be our reality. We do have the power to change that and shape it in however we see fit. And for me, that's a reality of caring about people and not taking ridiculous risks out of competitiveness, out of sheer greed. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of room for us to grow as a society and to have innovation and to have economic growth, but to do it in a way that doesn't put our entire species at risk. I guess if that's radical, then yeah, I guess I'm radical. <laughs> For those of our listeners and just those in the general community, uh, the layman, the technologist, and everyone in between, if they are looking to be kind, to make change, and to help with everything that you've mentioned today, what's something that they can do today to start on that path? Another fantastic question. I would say the first thing to do is just to call your city council member. Letters work. Emails work. If, if you're not comfortable on the phone and have anxiety about phone calls, I'm with you. I get it. It's a real thing. Um, but the phone calls, you can gum up the works with one phone call, asking for one meeting um, and getting even just like two or three friends to cooperate and to launch a little, you know, mini campaign against uh, city council. Tell them that you don't want facial recognition. You know, it goes, it doesn't go nowhere. It goes into a big database that people are looking at when they're considering like, how do I get reelected in my neighborhood? Their jobs are accountable to us. Um, so call city council, start small, just write them an email, send them a chat, send them a tweet. Tweets work. It's crazy. It's so low effort, but tweets work. Um, yeah. And so just like find out who that person is. It's not that hard write them, write to them and tell them that you have strong feelings about facial recognition or, or other kinds of surveillance. I promise you, if you live in this, in anywhere in this country, your police departments have probably at least had that conversation. They've probably at least explored some of the options around it. Um, so if you think that, you know, oh, well, I don't live in New York. This is not a big deal. I just live in Wisconsin. I live wherever, um, you know, it's, it's affecting all of us. It's not just a big city thing it's a rural towns it's a medium-sized towns thing as well um so tell them no tell them you don't want to do that and they, they will they will listen believe me i've been there they do normally i'd probably just end by asking you if you have any any final thoughts but i actually have a very a question that i struggle with in terms of surveillance especially having lived in new york for 10 years and seeing surveillance even evolve during that time in terms of technology in terms of having a lot of friends uh, especially Black friends who uh, were, you know, arrested or fined massive amounts of money for turnstile jumping and things like that. Oh, yeah. Stop and frisk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is, can there be an ethical use of surveillance technology? <laughs> Just the, the, the law to, to end the interview with, I guess. But, but, but I'm really, through this conversation, I've really been struggling with that, like how I would answer that question. I don't know if I, I don't know if I have an answer for that. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you do. 
Yeah. I mean, so I, I, this is a really, really hard question to me where I really had the reckoning about this and, and continued down my path to become like <laughs> a very political person um, was when, when COVID broke out and everybody's turned immediately to tech and said, can we use our smartphones to solve this crisis? Can we have some sort of a marker that will tell you if you've been within certain range of somebody who's had it and like there's no use case that's more pertinent that you can't connect with on a personal level like us not knowing where the infections are is what's keeping us indoors right now. It's painful, right? It, it sucks. Um, and so the debate, you know, started out with, with me thinking like, there's gotta be a way, there's gotta be a way. Um, the more you learn about it, the less effective you see that it is that these Bluetooth powered APIs have a lot of limitations by the weather, by the location, the amount of buildings that are crammed in. You think about how it works in the suburbs because everybody's got a separate house and there's plenty of distance, but in apartment buildings, low-income housing, where people tend to be closer together, what kinds of signals, like what kinds of accuracy will we even see through these walls? You know, can the signal permeate the walls? Um, and then even more than that, you know, this is supposed to be a public-private partnership. So this API, whatever, that Google and Apple put out gets wrapped into an application that's probably not owned by the state. It's probably some company that's partnering with the state and, um, and they have their own terms. Even if it is just opt-in through Google and Apple, they can uh, use that data and sell it for advertising. And if a police officer wanted access to that information for any reason, if they have probable cause, they can request it. And so what we're talking about is just creating a new database that contains the location of every human being in the country every moment of the day. That's very dangerous, right? And so it's not a question of can, can this exist and can it be used on a one-off ethical basis? Like, sure, we want to be able to prevent crimes from happening, right? Like that's, that's common sense. The trouble is that in order to, to frame it that way, you're ignoring the fact that these systems have to be complete in order to get that data. They have to be very comprehensive where you have like a ton of information collected that's owned by a private company that's owned, that's accessible by the state, by law enforcement. And that's just a ton of power where there's not enough accountability over how it's being used, when it's being used and, and who gets to own it and use it for what. Um, so I have had to become, you know, this voice on like banning things that seem like they have some degree of utility. Um, but to me, the trade-offs are just too dire and, you know, maybe it's possible we could have some very, very strong laws. A very good example of that as Albert, um, from stop use loves to say, um, is, is census data. So census data constitutionally is completely illegal to be used for anything else. It lives separately um, and the penalties are criminal and very, very large. That modality, maybe, if we were to say that these kinds of data are completely protected, like social media data is protected. <laughs> it's a hugely radical ask. Like all of our social media data should just not be accessible by police departments. But I mean, that would be one way for me to feel comfortable about surveillance, um, you know, with the, where it's very clear delineation, like what you're doing that's public versus what you're doing that's like with your friends and your private life. Um, so I would say if it exists, if it's possible, I haven't seen it yet in practice. And I look forward to that. I would love to see a paradigm that is ethically acceptable, but 
the, the things that we have out there that are in the world right now are certainly not that. And so we're going to keep trying to outlaw them until they're gone. Liz, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experience and thoughts on all this. If any of our listeners want to either get in touch with you or take a look at some of your work, where's the best place for them to go? Probably Twitter. Uh, I do a lot of yelling at people on Twitter um, at Liz J. O'Sullivan, Liz J. O'Sullivan, or you can find us at Stop Spying and Why. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Liz. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great fun. We want to thank Liz O'Sullivan again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation and this check-in on the state of surveillance in our world today. So Dylan, I'm going to throw the softball over to you. What is your first reaction coming out of this interview? Ooh, I don't know if it's, if it's much of a softball. Um, <laughs> surveillance is, um, God, it's such a tough topic. And I just have so much respect for what uh, Liz is doing and what um, the STOP organization is is doing in terms of explainability and uh, combating what to me still feels like a really amorphous enemy, I, I want to say, um, because I got out of that conversation um, really appreciative of how much hope Liz was putting into this conversation, but really for me, just like with a real feeling of dread, um, because I do not trust the current systems that we're in to self-regulate surveillance. Um, And again, just speaking for myself, not speaking for radical AI or or anyone else, but it's um, especially after hearing some of the examples that Liz gave um, and some of the updates um, about how this technology is being used. um, I don't feel like I have a lot of individual agency in this conversation. Um, And I don't necessarily trust the uh, local or federal government to um, necessarily protect me from increasing surveillance or increasing surveillance technology. But one of the things that I really appreciated about this conversation was actually at the end when we started talking about, well, could there be any sort of good uh, surveillance technology? Um, Can it be useful? Uh, Is is it possible? And um, for me, it seems like the answer could be yes, if we can trust our systems. But right now, these systems are not giving me a lot to trust. See, it's interesting because I feel like after talking with Liz, I actually had definitely a little bit more fear and anxiety about being surveilled by the government in general, but also a little bit more hope and agency uh, over the fact that we can try to get the government to do less surveillance and we can actually act as citizens, at least in the United States, to really try to shift the power there. And I think what what made me a little bit more fearful um, over surveillance, not in terms of the government, was actually talking about uh, industry surveillance. And so this is something that has been really interesting to me ever since I took that one computer ethics class that I infamously always quote uh, from my undergrad degree. And it's something that I think about every single time I'm using one of my devices. If I'm Googling something, I am wondering, uh, is Google going to be using this search result for something? Could this be used against me? Even if I'm Googling like a flight, I feel like it just follows me on every single website I go. Or if I'm downloading an app or if I'm messaging somebody, it's 
something that's kind of in the back of my head. And maybe that's because I'm in this tech ethics and responsible tech space. And I know there's a lot of people who don't think about that stuff because they don't really know the extent of how much we can be surveilled, whether it's through, um, you know, government surveillance or, or just surveillance capitalism, as was, uh, you know, recently uh, talked about a lot in the Social Dilemma documentary. And I think, honestly, when it comes to surveillance capitalism, so that if, if a listener doesn't know what that means, it's kind of just the idea that all of the things that we do online are being tracked and analyzed in order to uh, sell things to us and promote things to us and grab our attention for longer for monetary gain. And that makes me very annoyed. <laughs> um, it makes me feel like I need to act differently on the internet. It makes me feel like I am not using the internet as a tool for myself, but that it's actually being used as a way to exploit my actions for the monetary gain of large organizations that maybe I don't even want to support in the first place. And it makes me feel powerless. Like it's not my fault, but there's nothing I can really do about it. And so um, if you're also feeling this way, listener, you're not alone, because I think a lot of people, especially right now, are really having a reckoning about surveillance in our everyday lives and with our everyday technologies, um, which is also why I really appreciated that Liz had a little bit of a call and actually a, quite a bit of a call to action for all of us that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, not even just in terms of the government and calling the people who are part of your town hall and your local representatives, but also in terms of large tech companies, like there are ways to hold these organizations accountable and maybe even more creative ways than there are with government because we can deal with less bureaucratic red tape. <laughs> it, so that gives me a little bit of hope, even in this feeling of annoyance that I'm sitting in. Yeah, I don't want to be a downer. Uh, nor do I want to be a... <laughs> You're not a downer, Dylan. A, a fear... A, <laughs> You're a pragmatist. Uh, nor do I want to be a fear monger, right? Because uh, one of the things we talk about a lot in the show is about, like, well, we don't want to just break it down into this utopia or dystopia worldview or anything like that. And when it comes to surveillance, I just... I go back to, like, being an undergrad my freshman year and, you know, reading Foucault and reading about the Panopticon and this, like future of cameras everywhere or this this idea that uh, the government's going to be watching constantly or um that uh you know technology is going to be used for these uh, nefarious purposes and, you know 1984 that kind of mentality and obviously orwell and uh, foucault were doing very different things but i think it's becoming real right i see this stuff and i'm like wait a minute wait a minute sci-fi wasn't wasn't all that all that off <laughs> with what it was uh, <laughs> guessing here. And and Jess, I know you do a lot of work with like speculative ethics and, and things like that. And also bringing in uh, science fiction into this. Like, does it not feel to you like some of these science fiction fears of even like the 1940s or 1930s, like are becoming real to a certain degree right now? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, like Big Brother is Mark Zuckerberg or like Jeff Bezos, right? <laughs> Um, and maybe it's almost scarier because with Big Brother, at least it was clear that it was something that was like taking over the entirety of the world. And it was something that impacted everyone's everyday lives and functioning. And um, it was like very clear that there was like a huge drastic shift in society based off the way that Orwell wrote 1984. And maybe the subtle changes that we see in our everyday lives and the way that we're surveilled and manipulated online are 
just so uh, almost like secretive that it's a little bit scarier because it makes us feel like we don't even know that it's happening sometimes. And yeah, I, I think that to me is is almost more dystopic and, and sci-fi. But ironically, it's like real. Like that's what's happening in our everyday lives. Yeah, just I, I have a question for you um, before we bring this episode to a close. Uh, one thing I thought a lot about in reflecting on this interview was Liz's term of being an AI activist. And I'm curious, do you consider yourself an AI activist or do you consider us AI activists? Ooh, what a good question. You know, if you had asked me this a few months ago, I probably would have said no, because I think we didn't even really know what we were getting ourselves into. Um, More recently, I think, yeah, I I think so, because I think this platform is a form of activism in itself, Um, maybe in a new and different way than people typically think of activism and and radicalism, but um, the name in itself kind of explains it, right? We're radical AI. And we're here to activize. Is that a word? <laughs> Activate, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but I like activize. Let's do activize. No, I, okay. I, I think, I think the, uh, I think the jury's out on that. I think we're definitely making comments on like the political structure of the world, and that's something that I just kept coming back to as well. Is just like, is surveillance always political? And I think it is if we define political as like power in action in the world between like groups and groups and individuals um and so i think in that way we are we are activists because we do have a set of values and we're saying no actually government surveillance without any account accountability without any explainability like that's not good like that that's bad and it's going to cause harm and so i think insofar as we're making comments on that then i think we are activists to to a certain degree maybe to a large degree um but we would love to hear from you as well, uh, dear listener. Um, do you consider yourself an AI activist? Um, and how do you define that? For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. <laughs>